Imagine you're in a room. It's 110 degrees. You've drank the last of your water and you know you're approaching dehydration. However, there are five doors in front of you and all you know is that behind one of them is an unending supply of water. Desperate, you pick door number one because it's your lucky number, only to get punched in the face. Ouch. So you try door number two. There's a glass of water which eases your thirst a little bit, but it's not enough. So you try door number three and hear the faint sound of running water coming from somewhere. When people first start on antidepressants, the period of finding the perfect cocktail works a lot like this. Hello, welcome to our podcast where we will continue the discussion covering depression, antidepressants, and the underlying factors from our genes and environment that influence the appearance of depression and the effectiveness of antidepressants. My name is Sally. And I'm Neha. We are students at the University of Michigan currently enrolled in a course covering the topic of neuroepigenetics. What is neuroepigenetics? Neuroepigenetics is a study of how our environment and personal experiences lead to changes in our genes, or our DNA, that can affect our behavior. DNA is the information we inherit from our parents that allows for the development of our specific characteristics that makes each of us unique. In fact, one of our classmates, Sam, created an entire podcast on this subject if you are interested and want to learn more. So how does all of this relate to depression and antidepressants? Scientists believe that studying these underlying, quote-unquote, invisible factors may lead to new medications that can act more rapidly and more effectively. There are currently over 20 million people in the United States alone that are suffering from depression. That is more than the population of the five most populous cities in the U.S., Los Angeles, New York, Chicago, Houston, and Philadelphia combined. Wow, that's a lot of people. So what exactly is depression? Depression is diagnosed when a person has extreme feelings of sadness, anger, and frustration that persist for a long time and interfere with the person's daily life. This is a huge public health concern that could be improved with the discovery of new medications and treatments. Research with neuroepigenetics is a promising place to find just that. Today, the leading treatment for depression is antidepressants. How do antidepressants work to treat depression? There are different types of antidepressants available that act in different ways to treat depression. The most common type of antidepressants are SSRIs, or serotonin reuptake inhibitors. SSRIs target the communication pathway in our brains. Our brains communicate information throughout our bodies by sending messages from cell to cell. For a message to be sent from one cell and received by the next cell, the message must must travel across a tiny gap between the cells by using chemicals called neurotransmitters. One of these chemicals is serotonin. I think I've heard of serotonin. That's the happy molecule, right? Exactly. Serotonin is involved in controlling our moods and emotions. So as serotonin is released from the first cell and the message travels across a gap to the next cell, the serotonin is reabsorbed by the first cell and then waits for the next message to arrive. SSRI antidepressant drugs target this area because it is thought that a person with depression may have low levels of serotonin and their serotonin may be reabsorbed too soon before the complete message can be sent to the next cell. So this would be like if your friend called you, yet the phone only rang two times. You wouldn't have much time to pick up your phone and receive your friend's message. Right. So that would result in poor communication between you and your friend, or poor communication between the cells. This will impact the person's mood and emotions, and this could be a cause of symptoms of depression. So what happens when a person takes an SSRI? SSRIs help to increase the amount of serotonin in the gap between the cells by blocking the reabsorption of serotonin by the first cell. This increase in serotonin may allow the cells to communicate more normally and help to improve the symptoms of depression. However, SSRIs, present drugs, don't work for everyone, as not everyone's symptoms of depression improve after taking a particular type of antidepressant. Why is that? 
Antidepressants can be effective, but they're also subjective. When a patient is first put on an antidepressant, they must go through a trial period where their doctor prescribes their best educated and well-researched guest to the patient. Then, over time, the doctor must adjust the dosage and medication according to the effectiveness of the drug in improving the patient's symptoms of depression. This period of guess and check can last anywhere from a week to years, during which the patient experiences a roller coaster of emotions. People have different responses to antidepressants because not everyone experiences depression in the same way. Scientists have yet to identify the exact physiological processes that are associated with depression. There is only research to suggest that there are certain correlations between depressive symptoms and what is going on in the brain of a person with depression. Continued research is needed to better understand the underlying mechanisms behind depression and to create new and more effective medications. So how does neuroepigenetics play a role in all of this? Well, like we said before, neuroepigenetics is the study of how our environment affects our DNA, thereby affecting our behavior. Most of these studies look at abnormalities in DNA. DNA is made up of genes, pieces of information that control our characteristics, like behaviors and appearances. This control is called gene expression. It's how we measure the presence of these behaviors. So DNA methylation and histone acetylation... Wait, wait, wait. What's that? Okay, real-world example. You know how different traffic lights tell you when to go and when to stop? Yeah. Genes also have traffic lights. DNA methylation, for example, is like a red light. It stops a gene from turning on. Histone acetylation is the green light. It lets the gene know when to turn on to its heart's content. These two tags help us locate where and what specific parts of our DNA are being affected. We'll focus on two brain areas, the hippocampus and the amygdala. Gotcha. So the hippocampus, that's the little seahorse-shaped area near the bottom of our brain involved with memory. Right. And the amygdala is that tiny bulb on the end of the hippocampus, supposedly the one responsible for all of our anger. Exactly, which makes sense because depressive symptoms often involve memory loss and lack of emotional control. I love it when things make sense. So what have they found so far? Well, there's a hormone called dopamine responsible for our pleasant moods. There's cortisol, which helps us react and respond to stress. That sounds like the movie Inside Out. You know how she had those tiny little people inside her head that represented different emotions? Like dopamine would be joy, cortisol would be fear or sadness? Yeah, exactly. Well, imagine there's another little person named BDNF. BDNF is responsible for socializing and enhancing the health of a neuron, making sure it's sending out all the right signals so it can talk to its neighboring neurons. When there isn't enough BDNF, neurons become homebodies and stop talking to one another and becoming unhealthy, manifesting in some of those depressive symptoms we talked about earlier. Recently, we found that people who are born with normal amounts of BDNF aren't necessarily safe from depression. People can still end up having decreased levels of BDNF later in life if they experience some sort of stress that triggers it. A scientist found that when mice were bullied by a more aggressive mouse, they were more likely to have high levels of the off-tag, DNA methylation, remember, in their social genes. This means that there wasn't enough social molecule for the cells to communicate with each other, leaving them weak and unable to communicate. When treated with antidepressants, however, the opposite happened. There were more signs of the on-tag in this key molecule, allowing for normal, if not more, communication between cells, leading to happier cells and happier people. You know, there was another study similar to that. Same gene, just a different tag. They looked at this tiny marker known as ACH3, found in BDNF that basically helps BDNF to do its thing. However, when exposed to stress, ACH3 does this weird roller coaster thing where the levels increase and then rapidly drop. And this drop, that's where things start to go wrong for us. So ideally, we should try to find a drug that can reverse this drop and reverse the depressive symptoms. Have they found one yet? They have, actually. 
Fluoxetine acts as a jetpack, keeping ACH3 levels elevated and prevents them from dropping down, reducing social avoidance behaviors. Awesome. So ideally, we could test for ACH3 levels before prescribing patients their medication and get a read on what challenges or depressive behavior they may be predisposed to facing, so we can have a better guesstimate of their dosage and medication. Ideally, yes. That's why it's so important to keep doing this kind of research. This field is so new, and if we've already found a few indicators of genetic changes that can point towards the likelihood of a person's mental health, imagine how many more we could find if we kept doing it. Exactly. It wouldn't just help out with diagnosing and treating depression. But since antidepressants are used to treat anxiety disorders along with depression, these findings could have widespread implications. The stigma behind antidepressants that medication is a quick and an all-encompassing option for treating depression is too generic and, quite frankly, wrong. There are many underlying unseen factors that play a part in the appearance of depression and the effectiveness of antidepressants. And by understanding this, we can try to recognize and create treatment plans that are specified to the individual instead of our definition of the illness. Imagine you're back in that room again. Except before you open door number one, you hear the sound of running water coming from behind door number four. You could avoid getting punched in the face, avoid wasting time as your condition worsens. Wouldn't you prefer that? Thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope you enjoyed our discussion. If so, please listen to the other podcasts in this series written by our classmates about depression and other topics pertaining to neuroepigenetics. Goodbye.